Hi folks, Jason Spohr here with Templar Strategic Solutions, and welcome to the pilot episode of our new podcast, Talks with Templar. And just to introduce Templar Strategic to you and give you a little bit more insight as to what we are and who we are, Templar is a private consulting and security guard firm here in West Virginia, providing services throughout all 55 counties. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to visit our website at www.templarstrategicsolutions.com. If you have a specific question that you'd like answered, feel free to shoot us an email at info at templarstrategicsolutions.com or give us a call at 304 591-9787, and one of our team members will get back with you absolutely as quick as possible. Okay, folks, jumping right into things. Before we get started in the main discussion, I do want to acknowledge that I am aware we have a bit of a mic issue today, and some of our audio quality is a little grainy. We have a little bit of background feedback kicking in, and I apologize for that. Hopefully, we'll be able to resolve it in post. If not, I assure you, we will work towards getting everything squared away and get this matter resolved in a timely manner prior to our second episode. Now, just to set a few expectations out in the air and clear things up for you, yes, Templar Strategic Solutions obviously owns this podcast, and we will from time to time throw, throw in a shameless plug or two or talk about some of our services a little more in-depth than we might some of our competitors. But we want you to understand that that is not the primary purpose of this channel. Overall, our podcast is here for you to have access to a very unique insight into the public safety and private security world. Over the series of episodes that will follow, we will discuss numerous events, numerous aspects of this industry, and that will range everywhere from current headlines right on to new technologies that are being rolled out. And the purpose behind all of this is to ensure that you as the consumer are best informed and provided with access to quality information so that we are able, when it comes time, to sit down to the table with everybody, play on an even field, so to speak. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is we want to work towards eliminating some of the negative stereotypes and negative publicity that some of these other security firms and similar agencies have encountered or created on their own and help people see what the benefits and the assets are of private security, as well as when we're able to do so, keep you in the loop when even one of our competitors rolls out a new innovation or a new process or tool that provides even better levels of service to the consumer public. And we hope that you will stay with us. We hope that you will 
gain new insights and become a more informed and more savvy consumer overall. And most of all, we thank you for joining our podcast today. We'll be moving into our main discussion momentarily. And when we do that, the first thing we'll discuss will be in-house security. To begin, let's discuss in-house security and what that really means in most cases. Now, barring something like a hospital or college campus that actually employ their own unique company police force, in-house security is... Well, they are in-house. They are privately employed individuals employed directly by the primary, and the primary in this case being you, the consumer, or the business owner, the homeowners association, or their property management company. And these individuals are usually of a lower classification skill set than a professional security officer. We'll discuss that further in our next segment here in a bit. But when you think in-house security, you really are simply thinking of, or speaking of, I should say, the loss prevention officers you see in private retail establishments, such as everybody's favorite big box store, Walmart, and the wonderful folks that usually meet you at the doors as you are about to leave, requesting to see your receipt and verifying the contents of your shopping cart. Or you might be considering or speaking of the doorman at an upscale hotel or apartment building in larger urban areas. Additionally, you would be looking at someone like your favorite bar's bouncer. These individuals Unlike private security, and when I say private in this instance, I mean professional private security contractors, these individuals functioning at an in-house capacity are not normally required to be licensed or registered with the state where they perform their service. There, of course, are going to be exceptions in certain states, and we'll cover which states have those types of mandates in place later on in further segments or in additional episodes as we progress. But the difference here, and this is a huge difference in my opinion as an individual and as a businessman, between in-house and the uniformed contract security, which of course we will discuss in our next segment, is the liability factor. The liability factor alone when utilizing in-house security is astronomical, and I don't mean that they are exposed to any greater risk really than contract security. I mean the liability risk on the part of the employer, in this case again, the private party, the private business that utilizes their own immediate personnel to handle their security situations or run their security program as a whole. You see, when you hire someone strictly in that capacity within your business, loss prevention and security, 
Again, as we say, we call that in-house security or a parking attendant at a condo complex or apartment complex, things like that. If something goes wrong, if there is a situation where someone is injured, well, the problem is, of course, yes, your employee does face certain civil and criminal liabilities, but additionally, you as the employer are also on the hook for that liability. That is, if your employee inadvertently or directly injured someone through their actions or through a use of force where they haven't been trained to properly execute the matter or where they exceed their level of authority granted by whatever state you happen to be in at the moment, then you as the employer can be taken to court. You can be sued for every liability and equally and held equally responsible by the court and by general statute overall for any injuries sustained by private parties, guests, even a trespasser, folks. If your employee hurts someone due to negligence, due to lack of skill, due to lack of understanding overall, and the courts rule that it is unjustified or the courts rule against your employee in this instance, again, like I say, we're discussing in-house security, then you as the employer now face additional hazards. And that additional hazard, of course, being, as I have already stated, you stand to be taken into a courtroom and have suit filed against you and your insurance for the injuries on top of whatever criminal or civil charges your employee might face. Now, granted, a good attorney might be able to get you out of this, then again, in all reality, the majority of the attorneys that I've ever met that handle these types of claims, they're not interested, folks, in getting you out of it. They are interested in how much can they make off of you financially with the least amount of work put forward. And I'm not saying that every attorney is like this. I am simply stating that those that I have personally interacted with, don't misconstrue what I'm saying, they're going to encourage you to settle the matter out of court. They're going to tell you, cut a check. Now, the problem here is how many of us as business owners, regardless of what type of business we operate, want to simply hand someone a check when we know that that person was problematic, when we know that that person initiated or instigated a problem for us that adversely affected our revenue streams or adversely affected our general operating procedures. Now, the truth of that is none of us want to pay out money we don't have to pay. But unfortunately, that is one of the compounded hazards of utilizing in-house security. Now, the second aspect to that, and this plays part and parcel with it, is that because there are so few licensing restrictions in regards or requirements even in regard to in-house security and I use that term loosely I apologize but I have very little faith in the process of in-house when it comes to dealing with real or serious situations but the thing of it is when there is limited licensing requirements, when there are limited registration requirements, the training and standards are not set forward 
the state does not regulate the amount of training or the amount of certifications or the type of training or certifications that your in-house security may be required to have or should have in order to function properly and efficiently in the field. Regrettably, I have seen over the years many facilities, be they resort properties like the commercial condo complexes that function as resorts on the different beach communities down in North Carolina even, that seem to think that, well, we're saving money by hiring in-house because we pay them roughly a third to a half less than what we're paying per officer with a private security contract. I'll explain why that is shortly, but again, in-house security, anytime you're looking at that, I will never tell you in-house, having your own in-house staff coordinating with a contractor is a bad idea. I will never tell you that possibly during your lower trouble points during your timeline, such as if most of your pro real situations are happening at night and you have minimal impact during the day, in-house is probably decent for that. And I'll go ahead and tell you if the biggest thing you have to worry about is petty theft in your establishment, let's say you're a retailer or something similar, then a day shift in-house security, that's fine. Putting someone in-house, checking in and out shipment vehicles. That's usually a fairly straightforward process, and of course, you can save a little money there on the bottom line. But at the end of the day, I do not personally recommend in-house security for any type of large undertaking where you know there may be problematic situations arising, or where there may regrettably come a point where there is a use of force situation in play. What I will, however, say in regards to that is don't look at an in-house security individual or professional and simply make the assumption that they are unskilled or untrained. I have met some amazing people that joined various companies that I worked with over 24 years in North Carolina who got their start in in-house security when they retired from law enforcement or they completed their contract with the U.S. military and an in-house position was the first opening they had, but they saw an opportunity for growth going into private sector security, so they joined in with a regular licensed security firm. But again, I cannot point out enough that there is so many lacking standards that regulate in-house, more so even than uniform security. And when I say uniform security, I'm referring again to contract security. In our next segment, we're going to discuss the importance of, well, I shouldn't say the importance of, but we're going to discuss the difference or the meaning thereof with contract security to help you better understand where we're at with that. And hopefully you'll gain a little more insight. I'll be able to offer a little bit more information regarding the differences once you have both sides. And again, as I said before in our introductions, the purpose of this channel, of this podcast, is in fact to 
provide you with a more open view of what really goes on in our industry and thereby helping you see what you're getting into when you start working with these various types and levels of security protocol. The one thing we're not going to discuss today are going to be the larger paramilitary type security firms like Blackwater or others of international note who are mercenary for hire. That will be a discussion we hold on a later episode because, quite honestly, there's a lot to cover on that topic, and there are some very sensitive opinions regarding it, and I would hate to clutter our pilot episode with such things. Okay, folks, now that we have discussed in part the in-house security and what that really does surmise to, let us discuss what contract security in and of itself is, what it really does mean overall, and what it means specifically for you, the consumer, and where you might benefit from utilizing the option of contract security over in-house. Now, contract security is exactly what it sounds like, guys. It is a situation where you, the consumer, contract with either a private party or a corporate entity such as Templar, and under the guideline of the contract, that, that provider supplies you with physical or digital security solutions and we're going to focus moreover on the physical aspect of it and that is the uniformed security officer. Now one thing you will not hear me utilize very often is the term security guard and for me the reason behind that is after 24 years in private security, I look at individuals and I either see a guard or I see an officer. A guard, to me, by my experience, and this is strictly based on my personal experience with these types of individuals, a guard is someone who is a turnaround individual. And by turnaround individual, I mean they are someone that as soon as they find somewhere better to be, they're going to leave the industry and they're going to leave your contract. And normally, when I think of a guard, I think of someone with very minimal skills. I think of someone who does not pursue the profession with any type of passion. And honestly, the only reason they are there is to draw a paycheck. They are a warm body, and unfortunately, they are the bane of my existence as a business owner, especially as a security contractor, because these are the people that we invest hundreds and thousands of dollars in training and equipping only to have them maybe survive six months before they've moved on and we're in a position where we have to retrain someone. Or worse than that, we now have a gap in our scheduling, our coverage, and we have to fill that as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, when you have people that meet the criteria that I classify as a guard, quote-unquote, 
you end up with dissatisfied clients, dissatisfied customers overall. You end up with people who lack the skills and deportment to truly succeed in this industry. Now, with a contract security, you know, for me, when I say the word security officer, I'm referring to an individual who has received extensive training, has a remarkable skill set, and if they don't necessarily have that skill set when they step into the business, they are always working to better their self professionally and individually. They're always looking to succeed. They're always looking for the best way to serve. For me, that is paramount. I cannot imagine personally sending an individual to a contract who I am not confident is going to be able to cut grade and really stand out as a positive influence and a positive impact on their site. Now, when I point these things out, some people may claim that I am biased, and in truth, not even going to lie to you guys, I'm human, I have my own personal biases. I try to not allow those biases to affect how I do my job or how I behave in uniform, but I'm not going to lie to you either. If you hand me someone with a minimal skill set that is continually refusing to learn better ways or new ways, who refuses to pursue training, then I'm going to hand you back someone that needs to take a trip to the unemployment line. I cannot, in good conscience, allow someone who is not willing to train, who is not willing to learn the necessary skills to succeed, to continue in this industry under my license. And the reason for that isn't just the liability factor on my side, but it's because I don't want to trust that person with your safety and well-being. I wouldn't want to trust them with your assets. I would not want to put them in a position where they might inadvertently, through negligence, have an adverse impact on you. Now, most states have a set amount or set standard of requirements that are needed in order to license or register as a private security officer. Some states, such as here in West Virginia, are a little more lax than others, and some are exceptionally strict. I know that in certain states, officers are required to undergo training very similar to basic law enforcement training or rookie school and recertify their credential annually, along with undergoing background checks, fingerprinting, and the like. Now, here in West Virginia, the rules are a little different to get into private security work as an officer. Truth be said, it's, it's almost the national standard as far as minimum requirement, and that is the individual must be 18 or 21 years of age. They must have a clean criminal background, including no domestic violence, no violent misdemeanors, and no charges that might constitute a weakness of morality or ethic. Now, obviously, felonies are an automatic disqualification to work as private security in this state. 
with Templar, our training standards are exceptionally higher than the state's regulations, but we won't discuss too far into that. I provided the website link in our introductions. Again, if you would like to learn more about what our officers undergo, look at our website at www.templarstrategicsolutions.com and feel free to reach out and ask all the questions you wish to ask. I am more than happy to answer you. I know that our tech officer or our director of internal affairs, Captain Jones, would be more than happy to sit down with you and discuss any of the matters. I know for a fact I am more than happy anytime, day or night, to sit down and discuss these matters with anyone who cares to ask, especially with our training, because we are outstandingly proud of what we have managed to build professionally as far as our training and standards. But one of those big changes for us, cutting back to state requirements, at Templar, we require our officers to score a minimum of an 85% on a 25-yard range and do so day and night under stress, shooting from multiple positions at multiple distances. Whereas for the state of West Virginia, the minimum requirement for an officer to work as an armed security guard is simply a carry concealed permit. And for us, we don't agree with that because you're talking about, A, an exceptional liability, B, you are talking a, talking about a profound level of responsibility and trust that you are placing in that individual. And we cannot simply say that an individual that went out and shot the carry conceal handgun range, which is, I believe, five to ten yards from the target and less than 50 rounds in most instances, if you find a reputable instructor, that, well, quite honestly, does not satisfy what we feel to be a necessary standard. Now, here is one of the one of the absolute hugest deals about the difference between private security in regards to contract security versus in-house, and that is the liability factor on you, the consumer. Again, as we pointed out when we discussed in-house security and explained what they were a little bit more. In-house security, if your guy hurts somebody, you're on the hook just as big as they are. With contract security, it's not your liability insurance that's going to be looked at first. It's ours as a contractor. We're the ones who pay the unemployment. We're the ones who pay the workers' compensation. And we're the ones that, on average, have anywhere from 500000 to a million dollars worth of general liability insurance not including our commercial auto insurance and other safety nets that are in place through our agents in order to protect not only ourselves, but of course our clients as well. Now, it may sound odd when I tell you that you can actually save a little bit of money by contracting with a security provider versus hiring in-house, but one of the things I withheld from last segment because I wanted to include it here is insurance. And what I mean by that, 
is that you are able to, in most cases, qualify for a rate incentive, i.e. a discount through your insurance providers when you have on-site contract security services in place. The reason for that, just like I pointed out a moment ago, is because we as the contractor are the ones carrying the workers' compensation. We're the ones carrying the $500,000 to a million dollars or more in general liability insurance and commercial auto insurances, etc., etc. When your insurance provider sees that you have brought on an outside party whose expertise is in fact security and they're bringing their own insurance, their own staff, your personnel, your direct employees won't have this burden on them. It releases you from certain considerations and the liabilities as far as the insurance companies are concerned. And in doing so, those insurance companies are more willing, because there is another policy in place, to offer you an incentivization to stay with them or increase your coverage and basically to reward you for being sensible and hiring professionals. I know that being sensible part sounded kind of condescending or arrogant. And if you took it as such, I do apologize. But again, as I've said before, our, love, our place of expertise, our field is public safety and private security. This is what our people train for day in and day out. And this is what my colleagues throughout the industry train for. This is what we do. This is who we are. And because of our expertise, especially when you get a well-founded company like Templar, who have over 30 years of combined experience in the industry through multiple states, we are the ones that generate those discounts, so to speak, because your insurance agent is looking at this from a very practical view, and that is if you're hiring in-house, you're hiring anybody that walks in off the street potentially. If you're hiring a contractor, that contractor's employees have had background checks, fingerprints. They've likely had both state, local, or state and local background checks right along with a federal background check. And furthermore, because they are trained professionals versus just a blind individual off the street, the risk factor, the liability factor on you and on them has now depreciated. It has decreased. But there are folks that would try to argue until they were blue in the face that in-house security and contract security are the same animal. Folks, I'm going to tell you, if somebody's telling you that, they don't know their head from a hole in the ground and they don't need to be in this business. If they're coming to you, one man telling you they can do more as an individual than one of my teams, be it a three-man team, a five-man team, or a ten-man team, under state authority and similar considerations, again, folks, they don't know what they're talking about. And if they tell you that they can do this job for 12 to $15 an hour per man, unless it's a huge contract, where they have multiple parties on site, two things are going to happen. Either A, your invoice is going to fluctuate ridiculously, or B, 
you're going to hire someone who's going to put a minimum wage employee out there with minimal skills or limited training, and they are going to, at some point, generate more problems than they have actually stopped. Now, as a security contractor and someone who's very proud of his tenure within this industry, I don't want to see you guys go through that. I really, really don't. But what I am going to say is, while we would love to be your security provider, I don't care if you come to us or you go to the other guy. I really don't. What I care about is that you have the best possible solution for your concerns and your security needs in place. And quite frankly, I strongly suggest any consumer who decides to contract security services for their business or their property or their community to ask for a sit down with not just a sales rep, but sit down with field leadership. And the field leadership are usually the team leaders, the shift leaders, the sergeants, the chief, the assistant chief, the captain, the lieutenant. Ask for a sit-down with them and ask them to show you what type of training they put their people through. Learn about that training. And the more you learn about that training, then look at how much it's going to cost you to train your in-house guy to have those same credentials or that same type or level of training. What you're going to figure out very quickly, and I can tell you this from personal experience because, well, I'm one of the guys that pays to train my people, is that on average, just in classroom settings, I will have somewhere between $1,000 and $1,500 invested in every man or woman who wears our uniform. And that's just in paying an instructor to put them through classes or putting them through various certification classes to ensure that these individuals are able to provide you the absolute best service possible. Now, not going to lie, it's not as cheap as people say, and the comment I made previously about the guy that wants to charge you $15 an hour and me telling you that if he's doing that, he probably doesn't know what he's doing. Well. That's because there's a lot more that goes into paying our employees than just paying their hourly salaries. And unfortunately, it goes back to what a very good friend of mine, the late Chief David Leonard from Black Hawk International Security over in Clemens, North Carolina, used to say repeatedly, and it has stuck in my head for many years now. When it comes to security, you get what you pay for. And what that means is if you're paying bottom dollar, you're getting bottom of the barrel personnel. You're not getting security professionals who care about the job and the industry and you as an individual client. You're getting people that could barely make it through the qualifications and took the job more likely out of either laziness or desperation to draw a paycheck. What you're going to get are the stereotypical security guards who are 
caught asleep in the guard shack or asleep in their car or not performing their patrols like they should on your site or who don't document their patrols correctly, you're going to get an employee from this contractor who is, again, bottom of the barrel and who creates more of a problem and more of a headache than, he's, than the problem or headache that he's there to help solve. Whereas, overall, if you talk to a security provider who says that their minimum billing rate is going to be around $20 an hour for an unarmed guard, what you're going to usually get there is someone who's making an average show on the East Coast between $12 and $17 an hour, and at $20 an hour, $12 to $17 an hour for the officer would almost be a break-even. And if you want to get a really good idea of what a security company should theoretically be billing you on the hour, I strongly recommend that you ask your potential provider to explain their pay scale. And the reason I say that is because normally it's one-third to one-half of your billing rate is going right back to that particular security officer. The lower the bid rate, the lower the quality of the officer most likely because what happens at lower billing rates, it means that the security company can only offer reduced pay. Reduced pay, I don't necessarily mean they're going to cut the guy's pay. I mean they're going to try to get him in the door for somewhere around $9 an hour here on the East Coast. And that is nowhere near enough, folks, to make a person want to stay at a job, especially not a professional. Now, that we have discussed some of that, we're going to take a very brief interlude and... In our next segment, we are going to discuss the importance of the training levels in and of themselves. Hopefully you're still with us. I do hope that you found at least some of this informative and informative enough even that you want to stay in Okay, folks. So in our last segment, we touched on briefly there when we were discussing the, the contract security and what it really does entail. We touched on the aspect of training, and to be quite honest with you, I cannot emphasize enough how important training really is in the private security industry. I don't care if it's in-house, I don't care if it's contract, if the person isn't properly trained, they will not succeed. And here's where I get into a little bit of my own personal and professional opinions kind of mixing. And you'll just have to bear with me again. Try to remember, I'm not here to market my security company or the Templar branding overall in this instance. I'm here to just lay it on the line for you with this because I want you to understand what you're dealing with when it comes to private security at the various levels. And with private security, of course, everybody's familiar with an unarmed guard. I've touched on the 
difference in paying security what they're worth versus meeting the low bid rate and in turn only being able to offer your personnel a minuscule amount and I'm sorry, I will call eight to ten dollars an hour a minuscule amount, especially if the officer is seasoned and well trained. But the truth of it is is even your unarmed security personnel need to have certain aspects of their training in place, and this needs to happen before they ever see their first point in the field. Now, the first thing, of course, that they need to understand is their role and responsibility. What I mean by their role and responsibility is they need to know where the limit of their authority is and what is expected of them in the position as a security officer in order to be able to fulfill that job. Now, yes, some people will try to argue with me that, oh, well, they'll know what their responsibility is when they see their post order. That is not 100% accurate, guys. When you're looking at the role and responsibility of a private security officer, you are looking at the entire jurisdictional authority of the profession. And what that means is while one client or one property may have a rule that says, you know, we don't want you detaining people or we don't want you engaging subjects directly, that's for that one property. When an individual begins training to be a professional security officer, they need to understand where their authority is as a whole within the profession, especially in any state that requires licensure or registration, be it through the Secretary of State's office like it is here in West Virginia, or through the Attorney General's office like it is in some states, or through the Departments of Public Safety or the Department of Justice like it is in other states. Now, the trick to that is while you may have a, and when I say trick, I'm talking about the hang up, the hiccup. The sticky part of it, where you may have on your particular property a rule or specification that you don't necessarily want a security officer to detain someone, and you just want them, let's say you have a criminal trespass situation, person's been told to leave a couple times and they don't leave, when they finally do decide to leave, they decide to kick out a series of deck lights or do some other property damage on the way out. And the thing is, is while you may not want them detained by policy, it's always best to know if your security officer has the authority to effect a detention under their state's licensing or the state's regulations and guidelines. The reason for that is, again, a matter of liability, because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, even though you don't bear as much liability risk in hiring a contractor, you're definitely still going to get looked at by a lawyer if someone is detained or someone's injured during a use of force situation. Again, your buffer is our security, the security provider, our insurances. Our liability insurances cover everybody's backside. Ours, yours, our personnel, even though our personnel can still be sued individually, just like any other law enforcement officer. And to clarify, in 
most states, private security do not qualify or classify as any part of regular or traditional law enforcement. We are private citizens, so to speak. We are civilians, so to speak, in that respect. And we are the B team. We are the support staff. One thing to consider is when you're looking at the training beyond just role and responsibility, has your security officer had any professional deportment training? And I am not talking about, oh, they worked in a convenience store for five years and learned how to roll with the punches when a drunk got mouthy or someone got rude or belligerent. That's just part of the job. And while it is a part of the deportment training, the deportment of an officer is their attitude, and so many things affect that. When you have a private security officer, especially a contracted private security officer, walk up in a disheveled uniform or disheveled clothing, period, with unkempt facial hair or their hair a mess, people do not take them seriously. And that is something that is almost always covered during deportment training, if it is a part of the curriculum and instruction that your security officer has undergone. And beyond just physical appearance and command presence, of course, deportment also assists the officer in being able to properly address individuals and situations in a manner that does not escalate those situations. From there, and these are just the interpersonal skills, of course, there's report writing, field interview process, little things like that that are absolutely important. But now let's step into more pressing training. Let's step into CPR, AED, and basic life support training. Is your security officer certified in these, in these particular response techniques, i.e., Again, first aid, CPR, AED. Have they been trained on how to deal with bloodborne pathogens? Have they been trained to respond to exposure to hazardous chemicals? Do they know how to read a material safety data sheet or MSDS sheet? All of these things are extremely important. From there, when you look at the security officer that has tools on their belt, a baton, restraints, pepper spray, a firearm, what kind of training has that officer undergone? These are questions you need to know. Now, for me, individually as a business owner, along with my partners, we have absolutely no problem in the world. We have absolutely no hesitation in saying to a prospective client or to a new to an existing client during our range time or our training classes, hey, if you'd like to come sit in and see what some of these guys study on, by all means, here's a list of our class dates. Or if we have someone who is looking at our armed security services, we have no problem saying, hey, come watch our guys on the range. Come experience what they come experience part of that training with them. See what they learn. See how they perform under pressure. See what you are paying for. See that you are getting your money's worth. Now, aside from CPR, AED, you know, let's look at 
some of the more advanced certifications and training that all security officers should, at some point in their life, want to pursue. There is EMT basic, okay? That is really stepping up on top of the basic first aid, CPR, and AED training. But that puts at your disposal a security officer who has medic training. In a case of a crisis, that can save lives without question. And the truth of the matter is, folks, when you're looking at security and the training, you know, do they know how to redirect traffic? Do they know how to work crowd control? All of these things need to be covered. All of these things need to be examined, folks. It's not just let me go hire Johnny $10 an hour because Johnny $10 an hour is going to give you $10 an hour worth of work. And that's on a good day when he's feeling extra generous. The rest of the time, he's going to nap in his guard shack between shifts. Or he's going to sit there with his nose buried in a phone or a computer or a magazine. And he's not really going to give your contract the undivided attention that you so desperately deserve as a client. And honestly, if you're going to pay somebody to be there to do the job, Shouldn't you want them to be giving that job that they're hired to do, their undivided attention and their undivided capabilities? I know that at our company, at Templar Strategic and our underling, or underlying company and branding, Templar Security Specialists, I am just going to be very flat about it. An officer caught sleeping on the job doesn't have a job when their eyes open. And that's just how it is. That officer, at bare minimum, is going to be removed from the contract, placed on leave, and recycled through training. Why? Because if they're asleep, they're not keeping watch. If they're not keeping watch, that delays the response time when aid is needed in the event of an emergency, and we just simply do not tolerate those things. Unfortunately, I have met companies that anything of that nature would be let slide in a heartbeat. And folks, I don't want to see any consumer hiring that kind of personnel. In the same respect, when you're looking at the training, I touched on this in our previous segment. We're going to touch back on armed security training here in West Virginia. Armed security training in West Virginia, the baseline minimum requirement, as I previously mentioned, is simply a carry concealed permit. That's right, a $50 carry concealed pistol permit in a constitutional carry state is all the baseline formal training requirement needed under state regulation for an individual to work in an armed capacity as a security officer. Now, Folks, here's part of why that terrifies me. A, yes, the use of force rules are very, very similar between the two. If nobody wants to go to jail for assault with a deadly weapon or attempted murder. But beyond those factors, the biggest concern I have, and I have witnessed this personally, I won't name names on our podcast because that's not how we operate Trust me, the right people to know have already been made aware, folks. 
But unfortunately, what you will see now, especially with West Virginia transitioning to the constitutional carry status, which don't get me wrong, folks, I love constitutional carry. I am all for my Second Amendment, right? And so are most of our employees and all of the owners. But what's occurring is I have encountered more and more fire, pistol firearms instructors and pistol firearms instructors being the ones here, the NRA certified firearm instructors that teach the various carry conceal courses throughout the state of West Virginia. I have met multiple parties who, if you have cash on hand or you're willing to slip them a little extra money, they will possibly sit you down through the class. But if they can carry on a conversation with you and you and they like your vibe, I know a few of them that will just simply hand you a certificate that says you completed the carry conceal firearms course. That's why at Templar, our standing policy is we don't care if you have a carry conceal permit when you come to work for us. If you want to pursue an armed position, you will take our firearms training. And then that firearms training, we assure you, is more than sufficient to meet the needs of the state of West Virginia to qualify for a carry concealed permit under current state code. Now, of course, there's reciprocity and with multiple states, and that again comes into play with the carry concealed permit need here in West Virginia, period, because as a constitutional carry state we as residents don't need a carry conceal to conceal our firearm but we do need them in those states which have not yet embraced constitutional carry and additionally we need them for work here in West Virginia's armed guards because we do have to keep a copy of their carry conceal permit on file along with their fingerprints photographs etc but the trick of it for us is because we know for a fact that there are instructors out there who do not follow the rules, who do not necessarily make sure all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed that when it comes to the carry concealed training, we have a set 25-yard and 15-yard day-night pistol qualification course that is taught by a West Virginia Department of Justice certified police firearms instructor. And if you can't pass his class with at least an 85, you can't work armed for Templar. That is our rule, period. Now, we do also insist that beyond that, any training an officer claims to have received prior to joining Templar, we ask for documentation because we provide documentation for all of their training. Now, again, let's touch out on some of the other training that is so vital, okay? Let's say you hire in-house and for the appearance, you want them to have a can of mace, you want them to have a baton, and you want them to have handcuffs and a flashlight. Well, for starters, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, a maglite is one heck of a club, kids. It can hurt, and it can hurt a lot. Matter of fact, you can kill a man with a maglite if you didn't already know that. But did you know that you can also kill a person with an expandable baton? 
there are points and I came up when I first learned to handle batons, I learned to handle the PR24 nightstick. The old school sidearm baton. And mine was made out of aircraft aluminum with a spinner ring. It was a nasty little tool, but it was one of my favorite tools. Why? Because it was a very diversified tool that could be used not only in self-defense, but also in rescue situations and could easily give me the upper hand in gaining control over a combative subject. Don't see them more much anymore because without proper training, they can be extremely dangerous. But I bring up the PR-24 because one of the most famous baton manufacturers out there is Monodoc. And Monodoc originally had a four-color strike chart that was utilized during training. It was a black, red, yellow, and green color-coded chart. Greens were go. They were go. They were just like a traffic light. Go. And... Then you have the yellow areas on the strike chart that these strike points were likely to cause somewhat more severe injury that would be lasting normally for a day or two. You're talking some good bruising, maybe a cracked bone. It's going to hurt. It's going to leave a mark, but they'll live. The red zones were the, this has the potential of causing catastrophic injury. Avoid striking this area. Then there were the black spots. And the black strikes were, as you've probably already surmised, lethal strikes. These strikes were not just catastrophic injury. These strikes were in, strikes that could potentially cause death on impact. That being said, don't hand somebody a baton if they don't know how to use it. And don't just say, oh, well, we talked it over and they've got a really good understanding. Make sure they take some training, at least four to eight hours minimum, and make sure that they are rechecking on that training every so often with the security provider. And the reason I say that is if a security provider will not at least provide you with a copy of their minimum training requirements then they're hiding something, folks. I, I understand pro proprietary information. I understand the confidentiality aspects and things like that. But if a security company will not sit down in confidence and show you what type of training they're offering their people, it's because they're not offering them. And that's just a hard reality. I've seen it too many times before, folks. Now. When you get to looking at some of the other trainings, when it comes to CPR, AED, again, I will hammer on this all day long because it is vital. It is a life-saving tool. And the thing of it being here is when they take these certifications, how are they taken? And the reason I say that is I don't have a problem with someone renewing a certification through an online program. However, what I do have a problem with is someone going online to take a certification course for the very first time when we're talking about life-saving measures. And folks, the reason I say that is you can retain all the book information in the world, 
But if you cannot demonstrate the practical application, the clinical application of the skill, you have absolutely no business utilizing that skill set because, again, there are mistakes made by the competently trained professionals. Heaven forbid the individual who has never had any direct hands-on training with CPR, AED, first aid, and they do it wrong. Again, you're looking at catastrophic liability, catastrophic injury potential, simply too many risk factors for me to encourage you as a consumer to tolerate it from your security provider. They need to be able to show what type of training they're putting forward. If you, all they're getting are a stack of online certifications, they're not doing any practical training, hands-on training, they're not, in my opinion as a professional, going to retain the skill set at their peak ability. It doesn't say they won't have a working understanding. It's not saying they won't have a working knowledge overall. It's simply saying that without practical application, they cannot fine-tune their skill. If the skill is not fine-tuned, it is mediocre at best, in my opinion. And I hope that you as a consumer feel the same way, because we're literally talking about the current life or death. And then, again, it goes back to liability factors, you know, what kind of certifications do your do your security people carry? These are the question. That's a question that your insurance provider is likely to ask because, again, the more credentials that a security officer carries, that's going to be on your site. The more incentivization your insurance provider will be able to offer you. And regrettably, when you look at in-house security, again, these are your loss prevention, these are your bouncers, these are your private employees working one site under your name. 99% of the time, they're not going to come to the table with any type of advanced skill set, and more likely than not, it's going to be a possibility where at some point, either they are injured, one of your other employees are injured because of their mistake, or, heaven forbid, and I know I make this sound bad, heaven forbid they kill somebody or severely injure somebody because they did not receive the right training. They, did not, they were never taught the use of force continuum. They were never taught how to think on their feet or how to defuse the situation and that is just, I mean, it's, to me, again, it's, it's terrifying. And unfortunately, every state is, like I said in the beginning, different in their regulatory practice for private security officers. So again, for me, I have to tell you, there is absolute value in asking your security provider or prospective security provider to show you what types of training they make available to their personnel. And better than that, ask them what credentials, what certifications, what tenure requirements are in place if you see that they maintain a rank structure to promote from within. 
ask them, does this brand new security guard over here have to have anything special beyond being a security officer during that set of sergeant stripes that this man over here is wearing? And if the answer is not yes, then I would run far and I would run fast. I wouldn't want them anywhere near my property because what it boils down to is they're not promoting from within based off qualification, but more likely based off of simply tenure or potentially some sort of interpersonal relationship between that individual and the groups group or groups of people involved in making the decision to assign an individual to a leadership or ranked position. Now, here in a moment, we'll start discussing the perks over, overall, though we've already discussed quite a bit of it here, I think. We're going to discuss a little bit more of the perks of hiring contract security over in-house and even some of the perks of in-house over contract security, but we've already covered the incentivization through insurances and things like that, and of course, the benefit of having properly trained personnel versus the average Joe off the street walking in, working in a loss prevention gig or other in-house security role. So we're going to discuss, like I say in our next segment, just a few of the plus to minus sides of in-house versus contract and contract versus in-house. Again, I do hope you've been able to keep up with me. I hope I haven't droned on too much, and I hope that you have enjoyed what you've learned so far and that you found enough value that you want to stay with us long enough to finish our segments. Okay, folks, so in our last segment, we touched on briefly there when we were discussing the, the contract security and what it really does entail. We touched on the aspect of training and to be quite honest with you I cannot emphasize enough how important training really is in the private security industry I don't care if it's in-house I don't care if it's contract if the person isn't properly trained they will not succeed and here's where I get into a little bit of my own personal and professional opinions kind of mixing. And you'll just have to bear with me again. Try to remember, I'm not here to market my security company or the Templar branding overall in this instance. I'm here to just lay it on the line for you with this because I want you to understand what you're dealing with when it comes to private security at the various levels. And with private security, of course, everybody's familiar with an unarmed guard. I touched on the difference in paying security what they're worth versus meeting the low bid rate and in turn only being able to offer your personnel a minuscule amount. And I'm sorry, I will call... $8 to $10 an hour, a minuscule amount, especially if the officer is seasoned and well-trained. But the truth of it is, is even your unarmed security personnel need to have 
certain aspects of their training in place, and this needs to happen before they ever see their first point in the field. Now, the first thing, of course, that they need to understand is their role and responsibility. What I mean by the role and responsibility is they need to know where the limit of their authority is and what is expected of them in the position as a security officer in order to be able to fulfill that job. Now, yes, some people will try to argue with me that, oh, well, they'll know what their responsibility is when they see their post order. That is not 100% accurate, guys. When you're looking at the role and responsibility of a private security officer, you are looking at the entire jurisdictional authority of the profession. And what that means is while one client or one property may have a rule that says, you know, we don't want you detaining people or we don't want you engaging subjects directly, that's for that one property. When an individual begins training to be a professional security officer, they need to understand where their authority is as a whole within the profession, especially in any state that requires licensure or registration, be it through the Secretary of State's office like it is here in West Virginia, or through the Attorney General's office like it is in some states, or through the Departments of Public Safety or the Department of Justice like it is in other states. Now, the trick to that is while you may have a, and when I say trick, I'm talking about the hang up, the hiccup, the sticky part of it, where you may have on your particular property a rule or specification that you don't necessarily want a security officer to detain someone, and you just want them, let's say you have a criminal trespass situation, a person's been told to leave a couple times and they don't leave, when they finally do decide to leave, they decide to kick out a series of deck lights or do some other property damage on the way out. And the thing is, is while you may not want them detained by policy, it's always best to know if your security officer has the authority to effect a detention under their state's licensing or the state's regulations and guidelines. The reason for that is, again, a matter of liability, because I'm going to go ahead and tell you, even though you don't bear as much liability risk in hiring a contractor, you're definitely still going to get looked at by a lawyer if someone is detained or someone's injured during a use of force situation. Again, your buffer is our security, the security provider, our insurances. Our liability insurances cover everybody's backside. Ours, yours, our personnel, even though our personnel can still be sued individually, just like any other law enforcement officer. And to clarify, in most states, private security do not qualify or classify as any part of regular or traditional law enforcement. We are private citizens, so to speak. We are civilians, so to speak in that respect, and we are the B team. We are the support staff. One thing to consider is when you're looking at the training beyond just role and responsibility, 
has your security officer had any professional deportment training? And I am not talking about, oh, they worked in a convenience store for five years and learned how to roll with the punches when a drunk got mouthy or someone got rude or belligerent. That's just part of the job. And while it is a part of the deportment training, the deportment of an officer is their attitude. And so many things affect that. When you have a private security officer, especially a contracted private security officer, walk up in a disheveled uniform or disheveled clothing, period, with unkempt facial hair or their hair a mess, people do not take them seriously. And that is something that is almost always covered during deportment training if it is a part of the curriculum and instruction that your security officer has undergone. And beyond just physical appearance and command presence, of course, deportment also assists the officer in being able to properly address individuals and situations in a manner that does not escalate those situations. From there, and these are just the interpersonal skills, of course, there's report writing, field interview process, little things like that that are absolutely important. But now let's step into more pressing training. Let's step into CPR, AED, and basic life support training. Is your security officer certified in these in these particular response techniques? I.e., again, first aid, CPR, AED. Have they been trained on how to deal with bloodborne pathogens? Have they been trained to respond to exposure to hazardous chemicals? Do they know how to read a material safety data sheet or MSDS sheet? All of these things are extremely important. From there, when you look at the security officer that has tools on their belt, a baton, restraints, pepper spray, a firearm, what kind of training has that officer undergone? These are questions you need to know. Now, for me, individually as a business owner, along with my partners, we have absolutely no problem in the world. We have absolutely no hesitation in saying to a prospective client or to, a new, to an existing client during our range time or our training classes, hey, if you'd like to come sit in and see what some of these guys study on, by all means, here's a list of our class dates. Or if we have someone who is looking at our armed security services, we have no problem saying, "Hey, come watch our guys on the range. Come experience what they come experience part of that training with them. See what they learn. See how they perform under pressure. See what you are paying for. See that you are getting your money's worth." Now, aside from CPR, AED, you know. Let's look at some of the more advanced certifications and training that all security officers should, at some point in their life, want to pursue. There is EMT basic, okay? That is really stepping up on top of the basic first aid, CPR, and AED training, but that puts at your disposal a security officer who has medic training. In a case of a crisis, that can save lives without question. 
And the truth of the matter is, folks, when you're looking at security and the training, you know, do they know how to redirect traffic? Do they know how to work crowd control? All of these things need to be covered. All of these things need to be examined, folks. It's not just let me go hire Johnny $10 an hour because Johnny $10 an hour is going to give you $10 an hour worth of work. And that's on a good day when he's feeling extra generous. The rest of the time, he's going to nap in his guard shack between shifts. Or he's going to sit there with his nose buried in a phone or a computer or a magazine. And he's not really going to give your contract the undivided attention that you so desperately deserve as a client. And honestly, if you're going to pay somebody to be there to do the job, shouldn't you want them to be giving that job that they're hired to do their undivided attention and their undivided capabilities? I know that at our company, at Templar Strategic and our underling, or underlying company and branding, Templar Security Specialists, I am just going to be very flat about it. An officer caught sleeping on the job doesn't have a job when their eyes open. And that's just how it is. That officer, at bare minimum, is going to be removed from the contract, placed on leave, and recycled through training. Why? Because if they're asleep, they're not keeping watch. If they're not keeping watch, that delays the response time when aid is needed in the event of an emergency, and we just simply do not tolerate those things. Unfortunately, I have met companies that anything of that nature would be let slide in a heartbeat, and folks, I don't want to see any consumer hiring that kind of personnel. In the same respect, when you're looking at the training, I touched on this in our previous segment. We're going to touch back on armed security training here in West Virginia. Armed security training in West Virginia, the baseline minimum requirement, as I previously mentioned, is simply a carry concealed permit. That's right, a $50 carry concealed pistol permit in a constitutional carry state is all the baseline formal training requirement needed under state regulation for an individual to work in an armed capacity as a security officer. Now, folks, here's part of why that terrifies me. A, yes, the use of force rules are very, very similar between the two if nobody wants to go to jail for assault with a deadly weapon or attempted murder. But beyond those factors... The biggest concern I have, and I have witnessed this personally, I won't name names on our podcast because that's not how we operate. Trust me, the right people to know have already been made aware, folks. But unfortunately, what you will see now, especially with West Virginia transitioning to the constitutional carry status, which don't get me wrong, folks, I love constitutional carry. I am all for my Second Amendment, right? And so are most of our employees and all of the owners. But what's occurring is I have encountered more and more fire, pistol firearms instructors and pistol firearms instructors being the ones here, the NRA certified firearm instructors that teach the 
various carry concealed courses throughout the state of West Virginia. I have met multiple parties who, if you have cash on hand or you're willing to slip them a little extra money, they will possibly sit you down through the class. But if they can carry on a conversation with you and you and they like your vibe, I know a few of them that will just simply hand you a certificate that says you completed the carry conceal firearms course. That's why at Templar, our standing policy is we don't care if you have a carry conceal permit when you come to work for us. If you want to pursue an armed position, you will take our firearms training. And then that firearms training, we assure you, is more than sufficient to meet the needs of the state of West Virginia to qualify for a carry conceal permit under current state code. Now, of course, there's reciprocity and with multiple states, and that again comes into play with the carry conceal permit need here in West Virginia, period, because as a constitutional carry state, we as residents don't need a carry conceal to conceal our firearm, but we do need them in those states which have not yet embraced constitutional carry, and additionally, we need them for work here in West Virginia's armed guards because we do have to keep a copy of their carry conceal permit on file along with their fingerprints, photographs, etc. But the trick of it for us is because we know for a fact that there are instructors out there who do not follow the rules, who do not necessarily make sure all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed that when it comes to the carry concealed training, we have a set 25-yard and 15-yard day-night pistol qualification course that is taught by a West Virginia Department of Justice certified police firearms instructor. And if you can't pass his class with at least an 85, you can't work armed for Templar. That is our rule, period. Now, we do also insist that beyond that, any training an officer claims to have received prior to joining Templar, we ask for documentation because we provide documentation for all of their training. Now, again, let's touch out on some of the other training that is so vital. Okay, let's say you hire in-house and for the appearance, you want them to have a can of mace, you want them to have a baton, and you want them to have handcuffs and a flashlight. Well, for starters, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, a mag light is one heck of a club, kids. It can hurt, and it can hurt a lot. Matter of fact, you can kill a man with a mag light if you didn't already know that. But did you know that you can also kill a person with an expandable baton? There are points, and I came up, when I first learned to handle batons, I learned to handle the PR-24 nightstick, the old-school sidearm baton, and mine was made out of aircraft aluminum with a spinner ring. It was a nasty little tool, but it was one of my favorite tools. Why? Because it was a very diversified tool that could be used not only in self-defense, but also in rescue situations and could easily give me the upper hand in gaining control over a combative subject. 
don't see them more much anymore because without proper training, they can be extremely dangerous. But I bring up the PR-24 because one of the most famous baton manufacturers out there is Monodoc. And Monodoc originally had a four-color stripe chart that was utilized during training. It was a black, red, yellow, and green color-coded chart. Greens were go. They were go. They were just like a traffic light. Go. And... Then you have the yellow areas on the strike chart that these strike points were likely to cause somewhat more severe injury that would be lasting normally for a day or two. You're talking some good bruising, maybe a cracked bone. It's going to hurt. It's going to leave a mark, but they'll live. The red zones were the, this has the potential of causing catastrophic injury. Avoid striking this area. Then there were the black spots. And the black strikes were, as you've probably already surmised, lethal strikes. These strikes were not just catastrophic injury. These strikes were in, strikes that could potentially cause death on impact. That being said, don't hand somebody a baton if they don't know how to use it. And don't just say, oh, well, we talked it over. and They've got a really good understanding. Make sure they take some training, at least four to eight hours minimum. And make sure that they are rechecking on that training every so often with the security provider. And the reason I say that is if a security provider will not at least provide you with a copy of their minimum training requirements then they're hiding something, folks. I, I understand pro proprietary information. I understand the confidentiality aspects and things like that. But if a security company will not sit down in confidence and show you what type of training they're offering their people, it's because they're not offering them any. And that's just a hard reality. I've seen it too many times before, folks. Now. When you get to looking at some of the other trainings, when it comes to CPR, AED, again, I will hammer on this all day long because it is vital. It is a life-saving tool. And the thing of it being here is when they take these certifications, how are they taking them? And the reason I say that is I don't have a problem with someone renewing a certification through an online program. However, what I do have a problem with is someone going online to take a certification course for the very first time when we're talking about life-saving measures. And folks, the reason I say that is you can retain all the book information in the world, but if you cannot demonstrate the practical application, the clinical application of the skill, you have absolutely no business utilizing that skill set because, again, there are mistakes made by the competently trained professionals. Heaven forbid... The individual who has never had any direct hands-on training with CPR, AED, first aid, and they do it wrong. 
Again, you're looking at catastrophic liability, catastrophic injury potential, simply too many risk factors for me to encourage you as a consumer to tolerate it from your security provider. They need to be able to show what type of training they're putting forward. If you, all they're getting are a stack of online certifications, they're not doing any practical training, hands-on training, they're not, in my opinion, as a professional, going to retain the skill set at their peak ability. It doesn't say they won't have a working understanding. It's not saying they won't have a working knowledge overall. It's simply saying that without practical application, they cannot fine-tune their skill. If the skill is not fine-tuned, it is mediocre at best, in my opinion. And I hope that you as a consumer feel the same way because we're literally talking about a current life or death. And then, again, it goes back to liability factors, you know, what kind of certifications do your do your security people carry? These are the question. That's a question that your insurance provider is likely to ask because, again, the more credentials that a security officer carries, that's going to be on your site. The more incentivization your insurance provider will be able to offer you. And regrettably, when you look at in-house security, again, these are your loss prevention. These are your bouncers. These are your private employees working one site under your name. 99% of the time, they're not going to come to the table with any type of advanced skill set. And more likely than not, it's going to be a possibility where at some point, either they are injured, one of your other employees are injured because of their mistake, or heaven forbid, and I know I make this sound bad, heaven forbid they kill somebody or severely injure somebody because they did not receive the right training. They didn't they were never taught the use of force continuum. They were never taught how to think on their feet or how to defuse the situation. And that is just, I mean, it's, to me, again, it's, it's terrifying. And unfortunately, every state is, like I said in the beginning, different in their regulatory practice for private security officers. So again, for me, I have to tell you, there is absolute value in asking your security provider or prospective security provider to show you what types of training they make available to their personnel. And better than that, ask them what credentials, what certifications, what tenure requirements are in place if you see that they maintain a rank structure to promote from within. Ask them, does this brand new security guard over here have to have anything special beyond being a security officer on that set of sergeant stripes that this man over here is wearing? And if the answer is not yes, then I would run far and I would run fast. I wouldn't want them anywhere near my property because what it boils down to is they're not promoting from within based off qualification, but more likely based off of simply tenure 
or potentially some sort of intrapersonal relationship between that individual and the groups of, group or groups of people involved in making the decision to assign an individual to a leadership or ranked position. Now, here in a moment, we'll start discussing the perks over, overall, though we've already discussed quite a bit of it here, I think. We're going to discuss a little bit more of the perks of hiring contract security over in-house and even some of the perks of in-house over contract security, but we've already covered the incentivization through insurances and things like that, and of course, the benefit of having properly trained personnel versus the average Joe off the street walking in, working in a loss prevention gig or other in-house security role. So we're going to discuss, like I say in our next segment, just a few of the plus to minus sides of in-house versus contract and contract versus in-house. Again, I do hope you've been able to keep up with me. I hope I haven't droned on too much, and I hope that you have enjoyed what you've learned so far and that you found enough value that you want to stay with us long enough to finish our segments. Okay, folks, we've discussed everything from what it entails with in-house security, what contract security is. We've discussed the importance of training and some of the benefit of contract security over in-house security, and of course, one of the big perks that we keep pointing out are the incentives that many insurance providers will offer you for having on-site security through a contractor. Now, let's discuss a few more of the pros and cons of in-house versus contract. Of course, one of the biggest pros to a lot of people is the front-end savings on your hourly rate, and of course that's because you're only paying an hourly fee for your in-house security, whatever your wage may be, whereas with contract security, of course, you're going to pay more because we have operating costs, but it also aids us in offsetting the cost of our insurances and the cost of training and maintaining these officers at a higher standard. Now, another perk for in-house, of course, is if you are one of those business owners or clients who like to have a direct management control, managing control of your security program, then obviously in-house is going to be the easiest because that in-house security is your employee, whereas the contractor's employees are just that, the contractor's employees and most of us in the security industry do have clauses in our contracts that clearly define that chain of command and that role and responsibility on your side versus ours and stipulates what means of directive, what authority you may or may not have over our immediate personnel while they're working your site. And I have worked sites where that one stipulation did, in fact, offend property managers and other members of the client's leadership. But we do that because, quite honestly, you as the client are not going to know every one of our internal policies. You're not going to necessarily have 
the best solution to a problem should one arise with our staff. But again, we'll cover that again some other time, folks. Or we can always discuss it when we sit down with you to get the details to put together a proposal and a bid for your security solutions. Now, again, I don't want to keep hammering on the same thing over and over and over. So we're going to close this episode out now. I want to remind all of you, if you have additional questions, if you want to learn more, if you want to know more about what Templar Strategic Solutions and Templar Security Specialists offers, if you want to simply know more about our company, by all means, please visit our website at www. TemplarStrategicSolutions.com or give us a call at 304-591-9787 or throw us an email at info at TemplarStrategicSolutions.com. One of our team members will jump back, jump on getting back to you with any information that you request. As always, if you're on our website, please feel free to browse our company store. If you look through the TSS store, you will find everything from self-defense and safety equipment to small gifts that can be utilized to recognize employees or clients, a, a small collection of TSS merchandise, and of course, our TSS branded coffees. We look forward to working with you in the future. We look forward to having you tune back in, and we hope you've enjoyed and found this broadcast to be informative and enjoyable. Thank you again, and have a wonderful day, folks.